Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday the 29th, I believe, nearly into June proper. Michael, how have you been? Friend and colleague is highly speculative language, I would say, listeners. The man is a beast. He's a nasty arb. You don't know how he treats me. You don't know how he talks to me off air. It's horrible. Michael is a bit salty because he couldn't start his recording properly. And I asked him had he managed to press the big red button successfully. There are technical issues of a kind that are, I'm sure, complicated and sophisticated, resulting with failures in the software programming in the recording program programming we use and Gary has not been helpful. No Michael I admit that budding pushing is an arse and you know some people just can't get it. I understand your limitations and I love you despite them. I know roughly where you live and I am in the possession of a ball peen hammer. <laughs> yeah. You will have to sleep eventually mister so I would just mind my mouth. I've been pushing buttons very successfully at a very early age. I'm sure. I'm sure you were a gifted student. Very gifted. There is a bit of a flaw in your ball peen hammer plan, Michael. What's that? Your crippling heart issues. Like you'll get one or two shots in and then you're just not going to be able to breathe. The good thing about a ball peen hammer and a, and a stationary subject is, Gary, you should really only need one good shot. Okay, so moving on from Michael's promise to murder me in my sleep. We have polls, Michael. Yeah, we do. Great, great, good, great news for uh, for all those people on the centre of the right and the centre right in Ireland that the parties that once upon a time people could pretend, I suppose, that they uh, represented them are now so deep in the shit, so mired in the going the wrong way that we are now facing into the dreaded reality, Gary, not of the Finnish, the Sinn Féin coalition government, but... Say it, say it, Gary. The overall majority. So, here is the Red Sea poll for you. Sinn Féin, 36, plus 2. Fine Gael, 20, minus 1. Fine Fáil, 15, minus 1. Green Party, 5, plus 1. Social Democrats, 4, minus 1. People for Profit Solidarity, 3%, no change. Labour, 3, minus 1. That is the Bacic bounce, as they said. <laughs> and it's the best bouts ever into two percent no change and independence and others eleven percent no change now this is the first time i am aware of and i imagine it's the first time it's ever happened Sinn Féin are now polling at more than Fine Gael and Fine Fáil put together i am old enough sorry i just say it's remarkable it's fantastic i'm old enough to remember a time when Sinn Féin and Fine Fáil together would have been in the mid to high 80s and here we are, they can barely scrape together the mid-30s. Yeah, it's quite a thing. It's, um... Yeah, Finnegan and Finfall seem to have no idea how to stop Sinn Féin from going up. At all. Well, no. No, they don't. Now, it, Gary, we all have to be aware of the possibility of confirmation bias. That I have a particular idea where I think Finnefall, particularly, or Finnegan, might be, or should be... And that naturally, I would like to think that the, if they were, <laughs> if they were allowing me to write their manifesto, or I was structuring their policies, or I was giving them direction, then they'd be in much better position. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they would be absolutely up the same shit creek and similarly paddleless. But, but I will say, Gary, if you're feeling a fall, right, and you have been basically pursuing the same strategic direction for more than 10 years anyways. 10 years now with Hall, isn't it? It feels like it. Yeah. And you're at 15%. 
after the great crash of 2007, 8, 9, and the election of 2009, the election? No, 2011, wasn't it? Yeah, 2000, it was the Europeans and the locals in 2009. Fianna ended up with 17 point something percent in the polls. And we all accepted that that was the lowest possible number. We, we said... We have often wondered what the core vote for Fianna Fáil, or indeed any political party, might be, because it's very hard to know. You can construct all sorts of algorithms and theorems about how you get it. But we knew, at that election, we knew that 17.8% was the core vote for Fianna Fáil, because only people who were utterly, utterly blind and blithe could possibly have voted for Fianna Fáil in that election. Then there was a kind of the semi-core vote that wouldn't vote for anyone else but didn't vote because they were making a statement, I'm just not voting. Well, Gary, we was wrong. We was wrong. The core vote for Fianna Fáil is not 17.8%, even if we allow for natural mortality, because there, Michal Martin has succeeded whilst in government, bringing Fianna Fáil below that number. And yet, I see absolutely no indication from Fianna Fáil, from Michal Martin, that there's an awareness that there's even a problem with the direction they're going. You know, you're, you're in a boat, Gary. You're in a canoe. The water's getting faster and faster. In front of you, you can see smoke, as it were, rising, steam rising. You can hear this noise, this crashing noise. And at no stage does it occur to you that, you know what? That might just be a waterfall, and we might be just about to go over the edge. Instead, you decide to believe, no, it's a Chinese laundry, and somebody it's washing day. Because the capacity to ignore the fact that you are shooting yourself, not just in the foot, and you're doing it on a day-in-day-out basis, is fantastic. It's admirable, Gary. It is worth pointing out that that is the Red Sea poll from today. But I mean, B&A had a poll, I think, two weeks ago now. And that had, it still had Sinn Féin on about 36%, but it had Fianna Fáil on 24% and Fine Gael on 19%. The difference there, there's been a consistent difference between these polls. And what's happening is, when you poll people, you need to make sure they're representative. So you weigh certain populations to be worth certain amounts. And someone is making a mistake on how they're weighing these things whether it's Sinn Féin voters or Fianna Fáil voters or Fine Gael voters, one of these polls is off. Possibly both are off, but it'll be in, in, in how they're handling things under the hood. And I'm not sure which one is right. We don't have to believe the number, Gary. The number itself, in a sense, is irrelevant until, I would say, six, eight weeks out from a general election, when people actually seriously start thinking, what I'm looking at is a trend. That's what I want to see. I want to see a trend. And if I'm in Fianna Fáil, I want to see a trend that's up. And I want to see it continuously up. And I don't want to see a little bit up and then a little bit down, a little bit up and then a little bit down, but actually effectively going nowhere. And that is what Fianna Fáil have been doing. They're going at best nowhere. In the face of current conditions in government, they have, they're failing to make real inroads into Fine Gael. They're not making any inroads, and this is the real thing. They're making no inroads into that Sinn Féin vote. And the Sinn Féin vote, from what the polling is that we've seen anyway, Gary, does it not strongly suggest that those Bertie voters, those working class, uh, artisanal tradesmen workers, the man in the white van, the breakfast roll man, that Fianna Fáil voter that got Fianna Fáil such good results in Dublin and across the country in the Bertie elections, has left them and gone to Sinn Féin. It depends on what poll you're, you're looking at. On Red Sea, it seems like there's a clear movement from Fianna Fáil to Sinn Féin. But what I thought, 
is interesting here is Sinn Féin are polling on 36%. I think that's what Fine Gael got in 2011. Yeah. And that was with the opposition devastated. Oh, that, no opposition. Fianna Fáil were an irrelevance in that, as I tried to explain to a number of people at the time we were working with. Fianna Fáil were, were not the point. The point in that election was Labour. If Sinn Féin can actually actualise these results, and if they have dealt with some of their issues with transfer, and they become more transfer-friendly, you are starting to get very, very close to overall majority territory. And actually, if you if you manage it correctly, you will get into overall majority territory. It's it's hard. It's very hard to get there these days. And the numbers are... With, uh, it, it, it's all about transfer. That's it. I mean, Jesus, which is such a cliche. Of course, of course it's all about transfer. But I, I suppose what I mean is, if you look at Fianna Fáil, Charlie Hawley longed for, lusted after an overall majority. Now, Charlie, at his highest result, I think maybe hit 44%. A party that got 44% today would have an overall majority, I think, without a shadow of a form of a doubt. Mm. But because this, they were such strong and disciplined trans, inter-party transfers, Labour to Labour, then Labour to, to Fine Gael, Fine Gael to Fine Gael, and Fine Gael then to Labour, and not to, to Fianna Fáil, they were never able to do that. They were never able to translate that number. I mean, you had Fianna Fáil regularly getting 39%, which was a disaster when it happened. But nowhere near at that stage, no. Sinn Féin will benefit if they surge and they, the left parties, the other left parties weaken to create a reservoir of those second, uh, second, the second and third transfers. Fianna Fáil, if Fianna Fáilers transfer, yeah, if they get the transfers right and maybe in the rural areas more so. I, 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 you'd want to see them maybe another couple of points, but they're, they're there, they're in the territory and they're certainly very definitely in the territory of being only needing to say five or six seats to make a government, which is much, much more what, well, we imagine what they want. We don't know what they really want, What they don't want, I would have thought was to be in a position where they're going to have to go in with the socialists and people before profit and a couple of independents and maybe the social democrats if they would or whoever not like some kind of big rainbow lefty coalition because that would look kind of in, te- unstable and problematic and also you'd be faced with policy choices that you maybe didn't want to make so if you like if you could go in just yourselves and maybe the greens or something i wonder if they'll find themselves again like finnegale in 2011 where you talk a big game but ultimately you don't really want to be the only party in power finnegale are delighted in 2011 that Labour comes in with them. So they've got someone else to blame and they don't have to do all the things they said they would do, which would have involved pissing off a great deal of people. Now, the end result would have probably been a better country, but politically not very popular. We know that in 2011, um, Labour had been trying desperately to find something that was speaking. Fine Gael looked like a bit of a tractor, a juggernaut rather, going forward. And they hit on public sector pay, that Fine Gael were going to go after public sector pay. And certain individuals got on to two or three prominent ministers, spokespeople, and said, listen, we this is working. But you, all you have to do, you don't have to make any commitment. You just have to go back out and say, no, this is scaremongering. We are, our, our manifesto commitment is this. And you'd be all right. We were told afterwards by one of the most senior people in the party, they had not wanted. They'd literally not wanted an overall majority. They wanted, and the f- phrase was, we need Labour as a mudguard. 
Uh, I thought I thought that was bullshit. I think that actually they just lacked genuinely lacked belief and confidence. Yeah, they they wanted the cover, but they didn't. They were terrified by the idea they might actually have to do a raft of what would be should be Finnegale policy, and they really had, they had their, they had no confidence in themselves, and I suspect they were aware that in the short term those policies were going to be not popular. But the kind, but there was an opportunity for the kind of level of reform, Gary. I think we we've talked about this privately, certainly. There was an opportunity for reform at that moment in Irish politics and Irish life that was just deliberately bungled. It will be interesting to see. Like I assume, as we get closer to a uh, to a vote, assuming that everything stays relatively stable as it is now, yeah. Sinn Fein in the last few weeks will see a fall of a couple of percent, maybe up to four percent, as the parties try and again just hammer on the drum of this is not a normal political party and try and get as many, particularly older voters, to not vote for them. But at the levels you're seeing, that's of limited use to you. It's very useful when Sinn Féin are a tiny party, but if you're polling near 40%, it doesn't really matter to you. But what I'd be very interested to see, Sinn Féin in the last election had a real problem with talent. Like a real problem with talent. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. that led to candidates who were basically paper candidates being elected to the <laughs> dog. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the term paper candidate, this is what happens. Political parties will often run people that they know are not going to win. And they will run them in particular areas just to have a candidate there. Now, there can also be, you know, sometimes it's done for vote management. But I'm, I wouldn't class that as a paper candidate, actually. That's just... You know you're not going to win, no. but get these votes and then transfer them yeah. to who you want to win. But a paper candidate, and this has become far more popular since you started to see gender quotas and people started to pay attention to these things, you will pick yes. candidates purely because they can go towards the gender quota or because they have some identity characteristic that looks good uh, in the press or, or, or whatever. The problem Sinn Féin had is... Several of the people who were obviously paper candidates, and I think a cursory examination of who was elected will show you who they were, but we will not mention them because of Ireland's defamation regime, got elected. And the problem now is after being elected, how do you get rid of them? (laughs) I mean, mean, some of it was genuine comedy because Sinn Féin, like any other party, the the people that work within them are, are... and most of them are, are reasonable and sensible people and would regard the idea of being a TD with absolute horror. And we, we know of one case, do we not, Gary, of, of a lady who, they, they were desperate to find a candidate in this particular constituency, couldn't find it. And they went to a, because uh, there were gender issues as well. Please, 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 please. please. And no, 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 absolutely not. I, listen, you don't have to campaign. You don't have to run. We... But what I, there's no way you're getting elected. We promise you, you will not get elected. They broke their promise, carrying the poor woman got elected. And I actually do a pretty decent job, you know, um, as good as many other TDs. But that was the situation they were in where they were desperate. And now they have a bigger problem, Gary. It's not just about, you know, how they, who they keep. I mean, because you can't deselect. You can't take a sitting They're now going to have to run another candidate and this time Gary that those candidates are going to be deeply suspicious because they're going to be looking thinking on a bad day I could win a seat so they're going to have to actually find people number one that are con- are comfortable with the idea of them winning but number two this time around the voting public will be actually looking at these candidates not as as 
a locus of their discontent, that where they can proclaim their disaffection from the system and the other parties. But they're going to have to look at them and say, is this a person that I want to represent me in Dáil Éireann? And that's a tougher question and will require, will require a tougher kind of a candidate. It's not going to be easy, especially for a party that is as committed to gender equality, etc., as uh, Sinn Féin is. I suppose I should, I should just press here that it's not just Sinn Féin that did this. Paper candidates are being run by every party. We were very. We would have been critical, for example, that AIM2 did not run enough paper candidates. Yes, yeah, just get them on there. But now that state funding is also tied to how many uh, women you run, you've just started to see much more of an interest in running women in areas that they don't matter. And you do that because you want to ensure in the areas where you think you'll do well, you have a free choice of which type of candidate you want, whether it's a man or a woman. You don't want a situation where your funding depends on you running a woman in an area where the best candidate is a man. So you basically just throw women at the areas you don't want so that yeah. the uh, the maths is freed up and then you'll, you'll run a man or a woman as you depend or as you prefer in other situations. But you don't ever want to be forced to choose. I was talking to a, uh, an individual recently who was a strong position to be a second candidate in a constituency. And with a, a chance, I don't know, a chance of getting a seat. And I said, well, you must be get together a bit of an old push around to get the people to give you the old nomination and I, I he laughed at me and said no no michael sadly the contents of my underpants are incorrect i have i have been bypassed by history which i thought was a sad comment on the nature of Irish politics that when the contents of one under one's underpants were what were dictating the choice there is a slight amusement in that because of this far more women are being run which means far more women are losing yes this is true because, as you explained, you want to give yourself the leeway so those are the places you can win. You want to make sure that the person you're running is the person most likely to win, and sometimes that will be a man. And, I mean, that's nothing against the uh, the women who end up doing this because oftentimes they're just party members who are asked, look, will you just do this as a favour? We just we just need this. And, it, look, don't do anything. Just You just need to be on a poster somewhere. Yeah, they're making the sacrifice for the party and for the good of the country and you know what and then suddenly you're a TD and you have to quit your job yeah and go off and live with all those other horrible TDs and and have a life which is no longer yours where 24 hours a day everybody thinks they own you and have the right to come up and pull your sleeve and say come here to me you and say the most horrible things to you and abuse you and still then expect you to get them the front door of the house yeah, no, I, I do actually feel for the um, for those people. Like, I know you've done it. I, I assume you've done it as well, Michael, but I've been involved in selecting paper candidates, and it's always just, please do us this favour. Yeah, absolutely. You're, de- you're, you're, you're explaining to th- that they're doing this higher duty. But most of all, you're promising them, you won't have to do anything. We really, we promise. But put yourself up in a poster. And... Uh, Sometimes they get into it and actually decide they want to be real candidates. Which is fine, because then, you know, they win a couple of votes and then they transfer yeah. over to whoever else. And that's all good. Like, that's that's fine. That's good stuff. But, uh, yeah, don't spend your own money on it. No, no, that's the that's the big message. It's, it's like making a movie, Gary. Never spend your own money. So it'll be interesting if, um, if Sinn Féin can actually get enough talent to both get people elected, which, I mean, yeah, you can get enough warm bodies to do it. But once those people are in... They could be in for years, 
And I think Sinn Féin will have learned from the last election that some of those people who you got elected, you don't want in for years. No, maybe, might, that might be true in some states. Then again, I don't know if that was exclusively true of the last election. It might have even been true of other elections, Gary. But... I think this is something that people may not fully appreciate if you haven't been involved in these sort of things. It is very difficult to find a good candidate of any gender or race. A lot of people who want to become candidates are just not suitable for it. Some are mental, some just aren't suitable for other reasons. And so to find a candidate is difficult. To find a candidate who has the required identity characteristics and is a good candidate is very time consuming. Unless you happen to be lucky or you have someone on the ground there who you can bring in easily. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time the desire to run for the doll should in itself be a disqualifying characteristic. You know, I'd like to say that the problem with Nietzsche is the people who should read him don't and the people who do read them absolutely shouldn't. It's much like that with the doll. Those people who are champing at the bit, desperate to run and get into the doll, a lot of them, not all of them, a lot of them are howl at the moon. And you have to find your way getting out of that meeting. Yes, well, that, thank you for your interest. It's been lovely talking to you. And we will be back to you uh, as soon as we've formalised our list. But you're thinking, oh my God, get me out of here. Then you get elected and you go in on your first day and you suddenly remember that Jack Chambers is Fianna Fáil's chief whip. Ah, did you have to? I mean, it's a Sunday. It's a nice day. Now you're after making me feel sad all over again. So on to something more positive, Michael. There is a new study on long COVID out aiming to answer the age-old question of uh, does the body rule the mind or does the mind rule the body? Oh, you're on a Smith's hit. So this came out in, actually, I think very, very, I think last week. And it's a, from the National Institutes of Health, which is a, um, it's part of the American Department of Health. So it's, it's basically their research group. And it's a longitudinal study of COVID-19, uh, what you call long COVID. And it's their, their baseline findings. So it's just out. And I said a long time ago, Michael, at this point, it feels like probably near enough the start of COVID when people start talking about long COVID, that I suspected a lot of it was going to be psychosomatic, both because of the immense fear of COVID and because the symptoms that people were talking about were entirely symptoms that can be psychosomatic. So for those who aren't aware, psychosomatic uh, symptoms are symptoms, they're real. They're not, they're not, well, I was going to say they're not imagined, but they, they are not caused by external forces. No, it's just the, the symptoms are, it's not that the, the symptoms are not imaginary, but that they are, they are, they are not the manifestation of an organic problem. They are rather the manifestation of a psychological disposition. But the symptoms happen. It's not. I suppose, well, it's not the point. It's not that people are making up the system symptoms. They actually do feel them. Which I think is, is an important point. Like psychosomatic illnesses are still, they can be painful. They can be deeply uh, debilitating, even though they are not caused, as you said, Michael, by any external force. But rather, they're either caused or aggravated by um, by the state of your mind, stress, things like that, and. It's not really useful if someone has an illness to tell them it's psychosomatic because it's sort of like going to someone who has anxiety and saying, well, you just shouldn't be bothered by it. You have, often you have no control over it. So there, there is a long history of psychosomatic illnesses um, and they will often be illnesses that actually exist, but that a large group of people claim to have where there's no evidence that they have it and where a medical examination cannot turn up any of the normal 
indications that there is a, you know, a disease here. Yeah. So this study did not say that long COVID is a psychosomatic. It came very close to saying it was psychosomatic. But the most interesting uh, result in it, so they basically ran these people through full medical screenings and they could find, there were a couple of areas where it was different, but not uh, where the results of the group who said they had long COVID were different to a control group, but they were so close together that they weren't really significant. In general, what they found in the group who said they had long COVID was no indication of inflammation, of ongoing damage to organs, anything like that. Effectively, every test they ran that would have shown something uh, of this, that would have shown a disease, came back uh, with nothing. What they did find, however, is that having long COVID is correlated with a history of anxiety disorders. At which point people go, ah, interesting. Yeah, so I, this was something I, I had been saying, that the way you, this was being talked about and the the state of heightened fear about it would impact on people, and particularly people of particular dispositions. And that seems to be what we're seeing here. Now, it's, it's important to know here that in this study, they looked at people who had had mild uh, cases of COVID-19, by which they mean people who did not end up being hospitalized with COVID-19. People who were hospitalized with COVID-19 might have far more significant issues because, I mean, you can have organ failures, you can have damage that's long-term and persistent. That's not what it was looking at here. And this was, again, one of the reasons why I thought this might be psychosomatic, largely. Because when they had done testing on it, generally somewhere in the region, about 25% of the people they tested who said they had long COVID had never had COVID. Yeah, that was my favourite stat, that you had around a quarter of the people suffering from long COVID or presenting with long COVID would never actually had COVID, which made me think, yeah, maybe there is an element here at work which is not COVID. I mean, it's 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 strongly indicative. <laughs> I left that. It's strongly indicative. Yeah, I think we can agree, Gary, it is strongly indicative. <laughs> I like that. That makes me happy. Uh, strongly. Yes, Gary, strongly indicative. Yeah. So I'll put a, I'll put a link to this study uh, below. It seems to be of fairly high quality. Now, it was about 180 people in the in the um, long COVID group. I, yeah, I think that just a couple of things about it. First of all, it is, as it says itself, it's, it's still early days. It is, yeah. It's, these are baseline results. As you said also, uh, people who had much more severe cases of COVID, and there were, in, there were many people around the world who had, who, for whom COVID was a very, very, very serious illness. I mean, to point of death with it, that we know that it has caused problems uh, in kidney pro- problems heart problems uh, there have been neurological issues brain issues etc the thing i think was interesting about i mean this is not this is not a discovery this is just you know is but it was very much again again a demonstration if we needed that it told us something about the way we think as an animal as a species that we are not naturally scientific thinkers. We are magical thinkers. And I say that techni- in a technical sense, not, it's not what you, by which I mean. This is post-hoc, prop-hoc thinking. There, there, there may be people listening to this who had COVID and then ser- experienced serious illness, which is not to say, for example, in that case, that the, the illness that they're experiencing is actually psychosomatic, but rather very often people, what they're doing is making that logical fallacy of post-hoc Proctor Hawk, 
because it happened after something, it was caused by that something. I got COVID, then I got a heart condition, or then I, I developed migraines. Therefore, my migraines were caused by COVID or my heart condition was caused by COVID, which is not actually necessarily true. In fact, very most, most of the time it's not true, but it is the way we think because it's a way of imposing order on the world in front of us. It's a way of imposing patterns. It's an easy way of imposing lines of causality. And that's what we like. We like patterns. We like straight lines of causality. And I, I'm just saying this to make clear. It's not that I, whether about the manifestation of psychosomatic illness in people who present with long COVID, but that lots of people may have may think, well, I was I have something which was caused by COVID, which is very real. Yes, I'm sure people, lots of people have very real illnesses, but that's more of it's a failing of logic rather than a failure of connectivity with uh, the COVID itself. But it's very, Gary, would you, we're going to be learning about COVID for decades, mm. about how we should have handled it, the correct responses and what the disease does to the body and what it does long term. So this is, we're very much at the beginning of this process. We are, and I think you know, they did all these testing. They were unable to find inflammation, things like that. Um, however, it could be that there is something underlying here that is in some cases being exacerbated by anxiety disorders or things of that nature. And it may also be that there is something happening here and they simply did not know which tests to run to find it because they don't know what it is. So I think we have to be open to that possibility. But on the face of it, it does seem that this is something that is heavily influenced by mental state. Uh, and yeah, sure. for at least a percentage of the people who have it appears to be psychosomatic in nature. For the... For the 25% or so that didn't have COVID, this certainly is. Well, actually, they, they didn't They didn't go into that in this test. And I think that's for the following reason, although this is just my presumption. I could be wrong about this. I would suspect that as vaccination has increased, more and more people have COVID antibodies, but have never had COVID. So at this point, if someone says that they had COVID and they have a vaccination, I assume they're going to test positive for COVID. So because they have COVID antibodies... So there's no real way to tell if the people who say they have COVID actually had COVID as long as they've been vaccinated. And given the scale of the vaccination program, you know, that's not everyone, but it's going to be a very high percentage of the population. So I'm not sure that's that's an analysis that can be done any longer. I mean, it'll be curious to know if anybody out there knows or we can find ourselves if we ask so the right person, I suppose. Outside of being tested at the moment when the infection is actually active i don't know if there is a mechanism whereby you could you could test somebody that would tell the difference between somebody who's vaccinated and somebody who had had uh an infection a year and a half ago no i, I don't know it's well outside my area of knowledge so i wouldn't comment on but it. still we could say the good news is it looks like the long COVID may not be quite the terrible plague that we had initially thought it that's your problem there because as we said psychosomatic illnesses are real, as in they still feel real to people. And even though the sim there are certain symptoms that are, are most likely to be psychosomatic, or, well, psychosomatic illnesses, I should rather say, tend to have similar symptoms because there's a lot of stuff your mind can do to your body, but it can't do everything. But those are still, they can be debilitating symptoms um, together. And you're while you were saying there, Michael, it, it may be better, it may also be worse. Because if it is a case of uh, effectively... Uh, you could see cases of, of psychological contagion. So if, let's say, this is psychosomatic and 
let's say the media go on a campaign about how awful it is and how easy it is to get you can see people develop these sure yeah social social contagion can take yeah so you can basically see a, a, a hysterical um spread so it, it could actually be worse in certain cases because it doesn't require the actual illness now that really depends you know how people talk about it and the general level of um feeling towards it in a population i would suspect we're going to see that the rates of it go down pretty continuously because the level of fear and anxiety that was in the population in you know 2020 2021 just doesn't seem to be there anymore massive change in the atmosphere around us so many people so much more relaxed so much more oh yeah you know uh, and actually the funny thing is in the last year and a half or so like after people have been twice vaccinated or whatever and with dealing with Omicron, it's not that the the level of risk the, or the risk profile has massively changed between now and a year and a half ago, but just the general atmosphere, the lack of reporting in the in the papers, that obsessive thing that so many of my friends and others had every morning, afternoon, evening, constantly the numbers, the numbers, how many infected, how many in hospitals, how many tests. Oh God, I stopped doing that just like four four weeks, five weeks into the first, I stopped because I thought that would kill me, but people did it and generated so much anxiety. But that's disappeared, that's dissipated. Not completely, but very large. No, and the thing with psychosomatic illnesses is they're largely driven by that. Not entirely, because a lot of it is the internal processes. But if you already have anxiety and you're getting this massive amount of external information saying you should be afraid and these things can happen, it's far more likely to impact on you. And that you're right, I think that's that's largely gone. But as you said, I think there will be there will be years of research on this, and they may find that there is some underlying cause that they just haven't found yet. I have noted that there is now a section of people and doctors who have gotten very involved in the idea that long COVID is absolutely uh, a physiological process and that it's just the testing isn't there. And people kind of edging into a sort of, well, doctors, um, that there is some level of corruption amongst doctors, that they don't want to. And it's very similar to what we saw with uh, some of the stuff with like Lyme disease, which is absolutely a real disease, but where there are far more people saying that they have got Lyme disease than seem likely to have ever had Lyme disease. Or at least when you actually track back over their symptoms and where they got it, it's very hard to see. Uh, that they actually, how they got it or where they got it or what physical symptoms or, or physical evidence is that they got it. But absolutely convinced that they have it and that the, it's just the fault of doctors. And that, that could get quite nasty um, because the, like the Lyme disease thing, that, that ended up with like death threats and... Oh, yeah. It was a whole thing. All over a tick that didn't tick. Mm. Anyway. One thing I just wanted to mention before we go. Yes. Um, it's something I found interesting and I didn't think I would. It's this Johnny Depp versus uh, Amber Heard trial. Now, I ended up paying attention to it because I was trying to decide whether or not we should assign people in grip to write about it. Because we were seeing that, you know, this is a massively popular thing. It's getting incredible views. And I, I started uh, watching along to it basically to determine whether or not it was worth doing that. And it is, it is actually fascinating. It's a defamation case in America, which is already a difficult proposition. But it has been... Very interesting to watch, both to see the media reaction to it and, like, the technical difficulties of the case itself. 
I think Amber Heard, Michael, has demonstrated exactly what happens when you have a client who just will not listen to you. Yeah. She came across as a, how would I say, a slightly unusual bird of a feather, a, 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 a bit cre- a creative, different type. Not your average, everyday well, type. I'll explain to you what Amber Heard had to do to win, because this is American. Amber Heard had to basically say that she was hit by Johnny Depp once, and then it was a mutually abusive relationship, and her statements about abuse and surviving abuse could not be defamatory because they were true. And she could have maybe brought on one or two witnesses to say they had seen her with bruises or had helped hide bruises, and then she could have rested her case, and Johnny Depp would have almost certainly lost. Amber Heard massively has the law on her side here. Yeah, I mean, as a public figure... Uh, and the states, it's already high anyway, but then public figure, it's incredibly difficult. But what happened was Amber Heard decided to countersue, or sorry, bring a counterclaim, which opened the case up massively. And then Amber Heard decided to take the stand. And the problem is Amber Heard and the evidence are at very large variance. <laughs> so instead of simply saying, you know, he hit her once or it was a complicated relationship, she ran through a series of horrific assaults, including, uh, I believe, a rape with a... not sure if it was a vodka bottle or a wine bottle, but they were a level of violence and savagery that could not be justified by the photos. And the problem you have, Michael, is because you're so famous, you're being photoed constantly. So she was talking about having uh, her nose broken uh, by Depp, and then they were like, well, here's Amber Heard the day after. And she's perfectly fine. And that just happened over and over again. And by the end of it... Her credibility was so shot. But also she was amplifying her defamation all the time. Well, that doesn't matter because you're on the, you're on the stand. You're on the stand. I mean, she's not, she, but the sense that from, the, from, a jury, from a perspective of a jury, that she's, her credibility is just emptying out in front of her. Yeah, she also admitted that the, uh, the, 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 the actual thing this case is about is about an article which was published by uh, Heard and actually it turns out to have been written by the ACLU in which she was talking about abuse. And Heard's team had started by making the very reasonable Sorry, one. it was written by the ACLU? Heard was going to come on as an ambassador uh, with the ACLU. So the ACLU wrote this article basically as promotional material, and it came out just before she, uh, Aquaman was due to come out. So basically everyone thought, well, this was a press move. Mm. And I'm not sure how well that played. <clears throat> Heard just doesn't look good. And she doesn't come across as believable and because everything has been opened up so much stuff was brought in that painted her horribly and now even though she has the law on her side i can see the jury simply disliking her so much and thinking she is so full of shit that they find against her regardless of the law but gary here's the question from you i have i know a lot of people perfectly nice and bright people who have been fascinated by this whole story have been following it now, I just want to just put it, throw in something which has nothing to do with this at all, but in conjunction. In the last couple of weeks, there have been two horrible uh, mass shootings in the United States. Mm-hmm. And yet again, we've seen massive amounts of commentary in our newspapers, on our TVs, about the United States and gun violence and gun legislation, which baffles me. Why people in Ireland seem to think that it's of interest to them what the, the United States does with its laws and regulations regarding guns, and that they know enough about those laws and about the social realities of the United States 
and the presence and the nature of violence in the United States, for them to be able to make a half-intelligent comment about what the Americans should do about their violence when we can't see to anything but our fucking violence in this country. And yet we are obsessed. We are constantly obsessed with Americans and the gun laws and violence and mass shootings and things like the Amber Heard. Why are you interested? What What is it that hooked you? Is it just simply a really weird, squalid human drama of very odd people? Because I can get that. I mean, a, a kind of a macabre Grand Guignol theatre? Or is there something else more interesting going on here? I, I think on one level it, it is purely that. Uh, I'm not sure if I am the average viewer of this little drama. I, 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 doubt, I, doubt, I doubt, Gary, you're the average anything of anything, but go on. I mean, I will happily go down to a local court. Just to watch a trial, basically as if it was sport. Well, yeah, I can get that. The brief experiences that I had in court, and I hadn't enjoyed. They are. It's a sight into that. You know, when you lift, you have the bit that sense when you lift the big rock and see what's going on underneath it. I think everybody in Ireland who hasn't spent time in court, who has interest in social policy or politics at all, should spend some time in a court. They're also they're. they're I quite like seeing them and kind of looking at them like, mm, would I have done that? Or what would I have said there? And you can do that even in cases in foreign uh, jurisdictions because like, there are going to be differences with like evidentiary rules or things like that, what you can object to, what you can't. But in relation to like opening, closing, how you present arguments, it's actually quite good to see them because you can kind of get a sense of how people who are very well paid to do these sort of things structure these things. And these people are very well Oh, I mean, there's, you know, there's the old saying that in a court case, the only people who always win are the lawyers. Uh, no, they are being very, very well paid. Some of them are going to have some reputational damage after this. Yeah, I've seen a couple of the videos that were sent to me by friends. Say you have to watch this. And really, you know, of uh, the uh, the Amber Heard's lawyers doing some cross examination and the, uh, he, you're getting paid probably somewhere in the region of six, seven hundred dollars an hour, maybe more, maybe thousand, you know, two thousand dollars, whatever the fuck. I know back in the day when I knew these people like this, they were it was. Actually, yeah, it was $600 a day 20 years ago, so probably 1500 A lot of money, Gary. And I'm thinking, non-rhetorically, I would do a better job than that. It was, I think, you've been planning this for weeks. I'll give you, I can give you an example of this, Michael. So in this jurisdiction, every side is given an amount of time they can use over the course of the case. I think it was 70 hours each in this case, but I'm not 100% sure on that. By the time it got to like the last two or three days, Herd's team had like an hour 15 left and Depp's team were on like seven or eight hours. Okay. But then you get to the, to the closing arguments and you get two hours to do this. And one side goes, then the other side goes, then the other, the first side goes again, and then the second side closes. Yes. And you have two hours over that. By the time it got... To the second part of that, Johnny Depp's team had, I think, 40 minutes, and Amber Heard's team had six. Six minutes to close. And the t- you're going to use all that time. And in six minutes, you cannot unfuck 40 minutes of it. That's the kind of thing that if you're on a varsity, you're 20 years old and you're on a varsity debating team, you would have, you would get your head beaten if you were to fuck up the timings of your rebuttal and your closing that badly. You really would... Yeah, and then Hurd's closing was bizarre because they have the first person, usually it'll be two people on each side will do the closing and you'll switch from one to the other. So the first person, a guy called Rottenborn, comes up 
makes the technical legal argument, which is what the herd team should have been doing the entire time, and basically tries to narrow it as much as possible. That's good. That's what needs to be done. And then the second person comes up and talks for what felt like hours, but was just a rambling diatribe and kind of undid everything that came before. So it's been fascinating to see how they're doing. Kind of, I kind of feel bad for Herd's team. I get the sense that that is a client that is telling them what to do and is refusing to accept um, certain advice. And I suspect what happened is they were going to play the kind of very tight legal game and that was the plan. And, you know, like like Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan to get punched in the face. So they go in. Yeah. And suddenly Johnny Depp in the court of public opinion is just dominating her. And she decides she needs to go and take the stand. She needs to have these tearful moments. She has to make these series of extreme uh, allegations. And it just detonates her entire case because by the end of it, she's not believable. But what I thought was really interesting, and this is also something I've been looking at, is the way the media have been portraying it. In general, the mainstream media have been on Herd's side. And a lot of it seems to be purely because she's a woman, which I would submit is a very bad idea in this case, because Herd is, um, she doesn't come across well at, at all. Well, hashtag me too, hashtag I believe her. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, I, I just, I wouldn't have done that in this case. But, but what's been interesting in that is, Social media seems to be much more on Johnny Depp's side, and there have been some articles in the mainstream media that have been much uh, much more heavily in Johnny Depp's favour. The willingness of the articles on this trial to simply not mention pertinent information that goes against whichever side they have picked, and this goes for both yeah. of them, has been incredible, Michael. Like There have been multiple publications which have mentioned things and just not pointed out that those things were then disassembled and shown to be false, or that there was any argument against those things. So, for instance, on the Johnny Depp side of things, Amber Heard's makeup artist turned up and said that she had helped Amber Heard cover bruises. That is a strong point in Heard's favour, and the truth is, that just doesn't get mentioned. But then when you go to the Amber Heard sort of thing, they don't mention things like Amber Heard seemed to lie about donating millions of dollars to a children's hospital. And then when was asked about it on the stand, tried to argue that the wo- that the words pledge and donate are the same. Because she had, mo- on multiple occasions, stated that she had donated all the money, including in the previous trial. Uh, Gary, I would love to be in a world where there was no difference between pledge and to donate. It's, it's that a would be of, a, these are as good as be... money, sir. These are IOUs. <laughs> I oh god I won't I you know, you go into Louis Copeland and I Louis show me your finest Italian le, li, uh, linens and wools and I want six of each and well that's very good sir and how will you be paying well I should give you an IOU you said IOU twenty thousand and I chopped it but but this is not money sir no but it's basically the, it's the same thing Louis. And then we off off to dinner. God, where we go? Gibbos or Thorntons, and then finish up for a few drinks at Dotney's. Oh God, that's a, that's a. Oh, I like Amber Heard. She's she's my kind of people. But there's a point where you're saying that on the stand, and you just keep they keep asking you <laughs> about it, so you keep answering it, and you've got to kind of think, how does this look to the jury? Yeah, yeah, exactly. People who actually live in the real world, and that's the kind that is so. Actressy Hollywoody. Oh well, it's the same thing. No, it's not. Or you know, 
they'll mention that Heard made these allegations of abuse, and they won't mention that in most cases, there was then a photo shown of Amber Heard either on that day or the next day with no sign of injury. But there has been like an absolute willingness on this just to basically bullshit people and just give them enough to make them think that one side is winning or the other. And it's kind of bizarre because the entire thing has been live-streamed. It's all checkable. Well, I suppose all you're saying is that what they're doing with this, in a way which is far more understandable and less reprehensible, is doing what they do with their... It's, it's football. You pick a team, you support the team, and you don't care... You know, if you support the team and the, and you say the ball and the the ball doesn't go over the line, well, the ball even if you you watch the replay ten times doesn't matter. You're that your team. You're supporting your team, and they they've picked a team. Sadly, they do exactly the same thing when it comes to policy, social policy, economics, po- political part, political reporting. They've picked a team, and they don't care. And we don't have a ref in the middle east, even to, to blow the whistle and give the penalty. So, at, at least in this case, it's just two actors going through the sort of the psychological torture of each other after a bad marriage. So, which is you know for us plebeian types down here in the in the cheap seats, you know, it's it's an entertainment. No, I have a feeling that regardless of what happens here, Depp has won pretty conclusively. In the from what I've seen, it appears that the court of public opinion has already basically decided how this is going to go i suppose for Depp, it may actually have there may have been actually an important side to this that if he hadn't contested it at least and in the perception of people successfully whatever the actual legal result is that his career might have been in serious trouble i mean we 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 saw how long it took melt uh Gibson to recover from the anti-Semitic incident to the extent that he has recovered at all and this is a far more serious allegation this is a, you're talking about using a violence against your wife that presumably could must have damaged his career significantly well that, that's what he's argued he's he's looking for 50 million from her although in their closing his uh, his team just pointed out to the jury that he didn't really care about the money and they could pick any number they wanted but no, he, it would be fair to assume his career was quite heavily damaged from this. But there's a question of was it damaged rightly or wrongly. It, it is actually, it is basically just a maudling little drama. But it is very entertaining, Michael. I kind of regret that I didn't take more part in it now. Because everybody said, keeps telling me it was better than Downton Abbey. It was also quite interesting, just from a technical perspective, as to the quality of the experts on each side. Because a large part of this case was uh, expert witnesses, paid for experts. Now, sure. you pay for a witness, they're going to say what you want them to say within reason. But Depp's team seem to have been able to secure witnesses who just came across as more competent and more principled. And by the end of it, I don't think a single one of Heard's expert witnesses was actually left standing. Like, they went through them like a fucking chainsaw. <laughs> and you're, presumably you're spending a lot of money on these people. Yeah. Uh, expert witnesses, depending on what they do and kind of level of the the case you can spend hundreds of thousands on expert witnesses you've got to imagine in a case like this amber heard is not she's not penny pinching they're not going to go and get the cheap guy they're going to get the the good guy i think actually one of the the most devastating parts of the trial for heard was a um psychologist that Depp brought forward called uh, dr curry and she diagnosed amber heard with uh, borderline personality disorder Mm. 
And anyone who's dealt with someone who has borderline personality disorder, it's a like it is a hell of a way to poison the well. I actually, bizarrely, of the almost nothing of this tribe did I see, but I think I saw the cross examination of uh, Depp's psych- psychologist that 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 individual, and it was it was really very she was very impressive under question. This was not the first time this lady had given evidence in a court, and the. Uh, the cross-examination of her by Hurd's attorney really didn't land a blow. I'm thinking this this is a woman who could be very, very competent and successful in politics because uh, her answers, also she, one of the things she she obviously understood was when you're in a situation like this, keep your arm, keep it short. Answer the question you're asked. Don't go looking for other questions. But no, it's it's, it's been very interesting to see the, well, the public reaction is, is the public reaction, but the media reaction has been very interesting. And I've seen like the Guardian has been trying to say that, you know, uh, this is the end for women who have been abused. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which they have said at every single case about uh, in the public eye for the last 30 years. If I was, if you're going to pick a trial, uh, and a, sorry, not a trial, but a case to, to pin this on, I would not pick this one because her does not. Like they both look like clearly damaged people, and Johnny Depp has a like a spiraling substance abuse problem. But Heard does not like generally don't don't side with someone who is on tape admitting to hitting their partner. Yeah, that's it's not a great one. I think we will be back next week, Michael. It, no, actually, there you go. I have a suspicion next week is about you know the the bank holiday that we always talk about but never happens. I think next week might actually be that bank holiday. It is Wit Bank Holiday, which is historically. Uh, the beginning of the summer season done around here. And the strawberries have arrived, just in case anybody was wondering. So everybody should come to Gori and get the strawberries because they are fantastic this year. They are just beyond, oh God, they're so good. So we shall see you sometime, or speak to you rather, sometime, whenever, next week. All the best. Bye-bye.